0: You're listening to audio from Grace Community Church in Anger, North Carolina. More information about Grace Community Church can be found at graceccnc.org. Well, good morning. I'm very glad you are here this morning. Uh, You expected someone else to be preaching this morning. I'll explain in just a moment. Um... My name is Brad Talley. I'm the teaching elder here at Grace. We were to have Isaac Mooneyham from Wake Chapel, pastor at Wake Chapel in Fuquay Arena, to be preaching this morning. But last Sunday night, he texted and said, my dad, who has been sick, is looks like he's nearing the end. And then Thursday afternoon, he sent a text that simply said, dad is home. So... Uh, Isaac and his family are in Danville, Virginia with the rest of their family, and we will reschedule him for some time in October. I just wanted to mention a couple of things. First of all, so glad that Jim Aycock is home from the hospital. Glad that Lisa Bagley is here, and please pray for my wife, Allison, uh, who has cellulitis. She has lymphedema in her right arm from cancer earlier in her life, and occasionally it flares up, and it was really bad last night. Um, But it's it's better this morning, so thank you, those of you who knew about it, and we're praying for her, and continue to pray for her, if you would. If you are new to Grace, if you are interested in learning more about Grace, about the workings of Grace, no matter how long you've been here, if you're not a member, we'd invite you to the Discovery Lunch on February 5th. Uh, it's going to be right after church, and we'll eat in here in this um, room, and then also almost two weeks later, uh, the the weekend of the, what is it, 18th, 19th, am, am I right on that, somewhere along in there, we will be having Grace Connection, so you need to sign up for both of these. Grace Connection is our new members class. If you uh, plan to join it, you must take that class even if you're not planning to join, but you want to know more about what we believe, how we're structured, what opportunities there are for service. That's a good uh, class to attend. So sign up for both of those online and look forward to seeing you at that time. Well, it's been almost two months since we left off our study of 1 Corinthians. And since some of you are relatively new to Grace, and it's been a while for the rest of us, As Jim said, we're all getting older, um, especially some of us. No way, that doesn't. Um, since since, Since we have been a while out, it seemed best to review the first 11 chapters of Paul's intense letter to the church at Corinth before jumping into the swift moving waters of chapters 12 to 14. Uh, Some of what I will say today has been said in previous sermons, but there will be also new ways of thinking about materials that we've already covered. So if you were looking for the perfect church, what would you hope to find? I'm going to guess a lot of you would say expository preaching, excellent music ministry, meaningful community and dynamic age group ministries. Those would be just a few of the elements that you would be looking for in a church. If I ever found the perfect church, the best thing for me to do is stay away so that it can remain perfect. There is no perfect church, of course, but all believers who are committed to the authority of Scripture want to be associated with a church that is saturated with the gospel, committed to mission, and blessed with unity. From what we know about the church at Corinth, is this the way that you would describe that church? No, they had so many problems. Paul addressed one issue after another at Corinth, and he rarely sang their praises. He did sing the praises of a lot of churches, but not at Corinth. I suppose one could offer something like taking the church to the woodshed as a title for the series in 1 Corinthians. In olden days, for those of you who don't know, the woodshed was the place where the father would take his son And administer discipline. Not pleasant, but in earlier cultural understanding, necessary and profitable. 1 Corinthians has the feel of a stern Apostle Paul disciplining the church at Corinth via the written word. It turns out it's God's word. And thus, it's profitable for us as well as the people of the first century at Corinth Church. So why 1 Corinthians here at Grace? Is Grace Community Church in need of such stern rebuke? Absolutely not, unless there's a lot more going on in the church that I don't know about, which there well may be. I'm the last one usually to find out about it, but that's okay. But but there is much about 1 about church life in 1 Corinthians that you're not going to find anywhere else in the New Testament. And so it's really important for us to know the structure that God has given for His church in this New Testament era. You could call this, how shall we then live in the church and in the culture? Thank you, Tristan, for, the, for leading worship this morning. And thank you, Pastor David, for that beautiful prayer. And reminding us in your prayer to the Lord that our culture does not really support God's word and support our life as believers. So, Paul had spent 18 months at Corinth. So he knew the people and practices quite well. And, And a lot of what he addresses in this letter was in response to reports from reliable sources and also from correspondence that had gone back and forth between Paul and the church. They asked him questions. So over and over he's going to say, now concerning this, concerning that. That's what it's going to be when we get to the teaching on spiritual gifts in the next few weeks, several weeks. So before we take a few moments to get just a little background on the city, remind you of the little background uh, about the city in which the church resided, we'll go to the Word and read some of the verses that led to the title of our study, Life in the Church with the Cross at the Center. The text for our reading this morning is 1 Corinthians 1, 18 through 25, and then 1 through 5. So if you would please stand in honor of the word as it's being read. I will be reading from the English Standard Version. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise And the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God Through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe, I can't help myself, I have to say a word about this. Think about this. Nobody can figure out God. And no one gets saved without the preaching of the word. Now, you may have read a Gideon Bible and it tells you the plan of salvation. That's somebody preaching the word. The word carried on from one generation to the next That's how we're saved. For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. Not just preaching up here, but any witness at all. For for Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who were called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. And then in chapter 2, and I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. Amen, thank you and be seated. Corinth Church was perfectly situated for the advance of the gospel. It was located on a narrow strip of land known as an isthmus that connected Athens in the east with ancient Sparta in the west. You can't see that from where you are, but it's 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 on that map that just, uh, or if, if the map were a little bit broader, you would see it. Uh, it, it to the north, um, there was the providence of Achaia, beyond which lay Philippi and Thessalonica. These were very important cities in the Roman Empire. To the south lay the Peloponnese and Cape Malia. The strip of land on which Corinth was situated was less than four miles across Even though Corinth was in Greece, it was very much a Roman city with its perfect location for trade. And what they would do, they would bring these lightweight ships and they'd get to one side of that isthmus and they'd put it uh, on uh, a cart with wheels and then drag it across to the other side. And it saved lots of time and some dangerous waters that they would have to get around. Such an important trade center brought all sorts of people to this city of more than 100,000 people that had been rebuilt, and the city had been rebuilt by the Romans in 44 BC after destroying it over a hundred years earlier. Anthony Thistleton said this, By comparison, Athens might have seemed a slumbering university city dreaming of its greater past. So Corinth was a a hopping and happening place. And unfortunately, the the, the folks at, at, at Corinth would have liked to have named the church the church of what's happening now because they were tied up With the world. Corinth hosted the Isthmian Games every other year, which were second in importance only to the Olympic Games. And because of its committed worship of the goddess Aphrodite, the Greek goddess of love, and they would say the goddess of love, Corinth had the moral laxity of a modern day San Francisco or New Orleans. And the business field of a New York or London or Shanghai, rhetoric was highly esteemed in Corinth. Debates between one group of philosophers and another, young men who followed their favorite philosophers would gather out front of the pagan temples and they would debate one another. but those debates often escalated into shrill shouting and accusing the others of being stupid and far, far worse. It was kind of like social media today being done face to face. If I had to summarize the chief characteristic of this church in one phrase, it would be the sin of seeking seeking to bring the ways of the world into the church and make them a part of church life. This error revealed itself in multiple forms. So it's a good time as we're getting back into 1 Corinthians to think about some of the prominent themes that we have found thus far in 1 Corinthians. Beginning with, the Apostle Paul wrote this letter to believers at Corinth. And despite their ungodly ways, Paul repeatedly alluded to their union with Christ. And you have this on a handout so you don't need to write down all those verses, and I went back and checked them, but that's a lot of verses, uh, and so I hope they're all uh, they're all connected in the right place. I think what has surprised me the most about preaching through First Corinthians is the number of times that we find the Apostle Paul affirming to the Corinthians faith in Christ and saying in one way or another they're united to christ when you read through this letter you get the sense that these are very worldly men and women and you want to say to them examine your faith Examine. look at your behavior you better examine to determine whether or not you are in christ as you can see though just from these listed here and it's implied in other places Over and over, Paul affirmed their faith in Christ. When you read the first nine verses of Paul's letter, it seems that he's writing to the best church imaginable. Notice in the the emphasis, though, in Paul's introduction that the focus is on what God has done for them in Christ. In an odd sort of way, Really, this is really strange when you think about it. 1 Corinthians gives testimony to God's grace for our redemption. You often hear of one who needs to redeem himself or redeem herself. It's NFL playoff time, and everybody's looking to redeem. You know, we're all looking. But But look, we can't redeem ourselves when it comes to our relationship with God. If our redemption is not found in Christ, well, it's no redemption of all. Jesus, as we heard at the table, came to save us because we could not save ourselves. We cannot save ourselves. When we ask God to forgive us based on Jesus' death as a sacrifice for our sins, then we become His sanctified children. And one day... We will be presented guiltless before the Lord despite our failures. Look, I, it's been a discouraging week for me. It's been a very busy week for me. But I was discouraged this morning. But the Lord lifted me up in the Word, in a devotional. Just encourage me. This morning, you may be here thinking, what is wrong with me? Is, am I really? God loves you. If you've trusted Christ, you belong to him. And it's not you holding on to Jesus as much as it is Jesus holding on to you. Rest in that. And when we rest in that, we can just live any way we want to, Right? No, Paul says in 1 Corinthians, not on your life. Even though Paul repeatedly affirmed their faith, he mostly addressed their mismanagement of this life in Christ and in church. And so the second point is the prominent theme of the book. The centrality of the cross is more than a Christian motto. It is a way of... Of life, When 1 Corinthians was written, both religious people and pagans alike thought it the most ridiculous notion ever proposed that the Savior of mankind would die a cruel death on a despicable Roman cross. Which is why Paul said the preaching of the cross is a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles. Get this now, understand it now. No one is going to be impressed with the gospel message that Jesus' death on the cross saves us except those who believe. It's not going to be imp- so when you go into the world and you think, Man, I got great news for you. It is good news. It's called that. Euangelion. It's good news. That's a Greek word. It means good news. But they're not going to see it as good news. When you speak, you speak both life and death to people. And you don't know what you're speaking when you tell the gospel. But it's great news to us. But it is utter foolishness to the world. The preaching and believing of the gospel is where the power of God resides, though. When you first believe the gospel, your eyes are immediately open to the magnificent truth of God's redemption. Immediately. What seemed on the edge of craziness last week now seems the most, to be the most logical proposition anyone has ever made. Many new believers are amazed that everyone doesn't believe. You remember that, right? Those of you who were saved later in life, it's like, man, I get it now. Everybody should get this. It doesn't take long, though, to realize that that most people consider what we believe to be foolish. So the Corinthians had tried to make the gospel acceptable for unbelievers. But Paul never let them forget that the cross is not simply a truth to be lived but a I mean a truth to be believed but a truth to be lived. Both our belief in Jesus and the behavior of believers are affected by whether we pursue a theology of glory or a theology of the cross. The definitions are on the handout, but the implications go well beyond our relationship with Christ, our initial confession of our sins and confessing Christ is Lord. They go well beyond what we believe about Jesus. Our commitment to one system or the other affects every area of our lives, as our third point indicates. Divisions in the church were addressed in view of the cross. Paul addressed these divisions these divisions in the church that were centered around preachers none of whom would have approved these factions i follow this preacher i follow that preacher i follow that preacher they would have said what some said i follow jesus but they were saying it in that way and he's like oh look god has made us one in christ we all follow Jesus, but not saying it just so that we can then point to everybody else and say, you're stupid, you're stupid, you're stupid. And that's essentially what they were doing. Paul pointed to the cross of Christ. And he says that cross brings unity, not division. Jesus' willingness to give his life for us, and Paul's example of giving up his rights for the sake of his brother's And sisters, for the sake of the gospel and for the sake of the lost, are clearly laid out in chapters 8 through 9. And when we were there in those two chapters, modern day application was made for living a cruciform or a cross-centered life. And so those thoughts are included on the handout. They're just starter thoughts. And if you want A thousand more that are impossible to keep, read Amy Carmichael's If. Fourth, elitist attitudes and actions in Corinth church made a mockery of the body of Christ in multiple ways. The real division of the church went deeper than who preferred which preacher. The primary division was between those who were educated, wealthy, and enjoyed social status, and those who were not and did not. Paul asked pointedly in 1 Corinthians 4-7, what do you have that you did not receive? Your intelligence, your giftings. The fact that you grew up in a house where they taught you proper hygiene, or somewhere along the way you learned it, what do you have that you do not, that you did not receive? What was not a gift to you? And if then you received it, why do you boast as though you did not? Why boast? Well, it's because of what we do, isn't it? We need to feel good about ourselves. So, if I can find somebody else who doesn't measure up in all of these areas, then I can feel good about myself. These attitudes in Corinth resulted in sinful behavior, including acceptance of sins that even the world refused to tolerate. You know it in 1 Corinthians 5, where the man was living with his stepmother, and Paul said, Even The lost think this is reprehensible and you accept it as if it's okay. The Corinthians prided themselves on a willingness to allow others to live any way that they wanted to. Hey, Jesus' blood covers all sins. I, I fear many congregations today do the same thing. Paul rebuked The church severely for approving behavior that even the world found repulsive. Also, there was a spirit of triumphalism that divided the church into the haves and have-nots. Which, the elitist thinking went, indicated the blessed. And not only the not blessed, but the cursed triumphalism is essentially a theology of glory stated in another way. It believes that we will always be successful, we will always be healed, we will always be victorious, and there is little to no room at all for suffering in triumphalism. If you follow this to its logical conclusion, which many people do or they suspect whether they Say it or not, those who suffer, who are unhealthy or unwealthy or uneducated are not blessed by the Lord. In fact, they are under the Lord's judgment. And it would be sinful to serve those who are poor because God is punishing them. How utterly opposite from god's ways this shows up time and time again in first corinthians you might not see it word for word in the text here's the interesting thing about this way that the book is written and those of you who have been here all along have heard me say it several times paul used rhetoric his rhetorical skills we're at the highest level. He was the equal of all those ancient thinkers, Plato, Aristotle, but he's never going to get the credit for it, of course. Now, we have a lot of Christians that we say, oh, there's one's just as good, maybe, maybe not. Paul was the equal, and he really shows it in ways in 1 Corinthians that you don't see in the other books that he's written, where he is addressing the educated, the philosophers, the, the those who were brilliant with rhetoric and and saying all of that is nothing but he was using the top level he was using top level rhetorical skills to tell them that and the poor who he was defending and uneducated often might not be able to even understand the arguments but the people who needed to hear it they got it so Paul says, can't have this. Next, believers taking believers to court could well have been the rich taking advantage of the poor through the legal system. How awful. We would do well to remember that God looks after the poor and takes notice of any who show arrogant disregard. For them, especially those who seek to take advantage of them. Next, this tough one for the old ones. It's getting smaller and smaller. I'm going to have to stop after D because I got got no more uh, ability to read it. Taking liberties with God's grace led to a disregard for societal norms by both men. And women. This was mostly about head coverings, but it was about so much more. As is the case for many of these points, you're going to have to listen to the sermons on the podcast or read the manuscripts that are available on the website to get the full details. The fifth main point is the dangers associated with sexual sins, especially those that go against God's created order. If indeed God created this world, and we believe He did, and if He designed to work in a particular way, then it, we know that it's going to work best if we follow His, the patterns that He has established in creation. If we think, though, we believe marriage between one man, one woman, and if we think the pressure for us to accept same sex relationships, And same-sex marriages is intense now. My suspicion is that it will increase to the point of forcing us either to agree with the culture or disband, not meet in the way that we are now. Now, this might not happen for another 200 years, but far better for us whenever it happens, as it already is, to be in trouble with the government than with the Creator the universe. We might want to consider that these are seven fat years, and we would do well to be prepared for the seven lean years. Along these lines, the sixth main theme that we are considering is the gift of marriage and the gift of singleness. Paul calls both Marriage and singleness, a gift. One of the reasons uh, that I decided to lead us in this review, rather than jumping right into chapter 12, is that so much of the truth that it's taught in chapters 12 through 14 is dependent on the foundation that has already been laid. Spiritual gifts, the gift of grace, the gift of salvation, the gift of marriage, The gift of singleness. Triumphalism. One thinking I'm a better Christian than you because I've got a better gift than you. And Paul's like, oh, you've even got that wrong. But but even so, it doesn't matter what your gift is. It's all for a purpose. It's for God's purpose. It's not for you. It's to serve others. When we covered chapter 7, we saw God's expectations for those who were married, the grounds for divorce and remarriage, the blessing of the vocation of singleness, difficult as it might seem to some. So, that's one of the themes. Seventh, strong and weak Christians and dealing with questionable activities. You ever... Thought to yourself, well, now I wonder if I should eat this meat or not. The only way we're thinking about eating meat or not is looking at the expiration date. You know? And some of you are like a week later and like, oh yes, yeah, all right. And others of you are like a week ahead and say, I don't know, it's getting close. But have you ever thought, what does it mean that that Paul said, talk, when he talked about meat? being offered in sacrifice to idols. Is it okay to eat that? Well, in some cases, yes. In some cases, no. In this study, which really I've found to be maybe as fascinating as any section of Scripture I've ever done, chapters 8 through 10, I loved going through those chapters thinking about how we can discern which activities are acceptable for believers and which ones while they may be acceptable for you, are not acceptable in this circumstances and which are absolutely not allowed for believers. Now, if you go to the website to check out those um, sermons, they're listed in order. We've tried to straighten them up, but we can't do it just yet. And you're going to find it's a little bit out of order. We had... Family Worship Month in August, and it seemed a little much to preach some of the topics on sexuality and, and um, pagan worship at, at, at temples that included leading citizens of the day, eating the meat that had been offered to, sacri- uh, offered to idols, and prostitution with underage It was just awful in that day. And Christians were, some of the Christians were trying to figure out a way to justify it. And Paul's like, there's no way. You absolutely cannot do this. So, really fascinating stuff in those three chapters. Last in our review, one of the themes was the egregious abuses at the Lord's Supper and the importance of understanding our oneness in Christ. 1 Corinthians 11, 17-34 is where we left off this series in mid-November. Paul accused the Corinthians of abusing the table in two specific ways that both made a mockery of the body of Christ people would arrive for most likely for an evening service, and they had a love feast, and somewhere during the meal, love feast in a very appropriate way to name it, but somewhere along in the meal, they would eat the bread and drink the wine in remembrance of Christ's body. But the rich would get there early. And so, uh, you know, before dinner, wine, maybe a second glass, And they were getting drunk, making a mockery of the blood of Christ. Paul said, do you not have homes to eat and drink in? What are you doing? But the other thing was this. They would get there early, but the poor who had little to no control over their schedules would come in later. And then the rich would say, you know, looks like God's judging them. So we better not give them any of our food. And and the rich would have a feast, and the poor would get by or have nothing. Paul said, indeed, God is judging. He's judging you. Some of you are sick, and some of you have died because you have made a mockery of the body of Christ. Jesus died to break down all the barriers between Jews and Greeks, religious and non-religious, sophisticated, uneducated Slave, free, men, women, we're all one in Christ. And just as hard as you can, you're finding ways to separate one another. I don't, I mean, I, I, I think we do our best not to do that in any way, but we always have to be on guard because one of the ways, I've already mentioned, that we feel good about ourselves is to compare ourselves with someone who doesn't measure up. Most of the time, we may think just a little bit about someone who's far superior in the ways that we want to be, but really when it comes down to it, it's pretty much just, okay, I need to compare myself and feel better about myself. And so ends an overview of where we have come to this point in 1st. Corinthians. Rather abrupt, wouldn't you say? As we think about spiritual gifts over the next several weeks, we'll be seeing many of these themes surface in the instructions Paul gave for members working together to serve one another and so serve the Lord in one body, even though we have many varieties of gifts in the body. So as we prepare our heart for the weeks ahead and for home group this week. Let's read 1 Corinthians 9, verses 19 through 27, where Paul gives a little nod to the Isthmian games that were held at Corinth and where he wrote about giving up his rights And even though this was written in the context of evangelism, Paul was teaching his friends that they need to care more about others than they do themselves. And that meant giving up personal rights, which is almost unthinkable in our culture. But it's still what God expects. 1 Corinthians 9, 19. For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. To the Jews, I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means, I might save some. And of course, he's not meaning that Paul would save them, but he would be able to witness in the Lord. They would hear and, and they would be saved. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I may share with them in its blessings. Do you not know that in a race all runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Not that only one of us is going to get the prize, but just run that way. Let's pray. Father, you have given us your word. There's so many different facets and dimensions to your word and we learn even in these harsh letters of rebuke we have learned from words of great encouragement in the New Testament but we also learn from rebuke and it's a warning as much as it is a corrective in many of these areas we thank you for loving us enough to not let us live any way that we want to live. And Father, just pray this day that we might delight in you as you delight in us. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Grace Community Church, located in North Carolina. Feel free to make copies of this audio content to share with others but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. For more information about Grace Community Church, go to graceccnc.org.